Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Genesis chapter 26, beginning at the first verse. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commands, my decrees, and my laws. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, She is my wife, he thought, The men of this place might kill me on account of Rebekah, because she is beautiful. When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, She is really your wife. Why did you say, She is my sister? Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, What is this you've done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, Anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Isaac planted crops in that land, and the same year reaped a hundredfold, because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up, filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died, and he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there, But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Esek, because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitnar. He moved on from there and dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. He named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. 
From there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. There he pitched his tent and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Ahazath, his personal advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his forces. Isaac asked them, Why have you come to me since you were hostile to me and sent me away? They answered, We saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we did not molest you, but always treated you well and sent you away in peace. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac then made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. Early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. Then Isaac sent them on their way, and they left him in peace. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well they had dug. They said, we found water. He called it Sheba, and to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and also Basimath, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Good evening. It's very good to see you here tonight. Penny, thank you so much for reading for us. Do keep your Bibles open at that reading page 27 in the Pew Bibles, and along with the uh, the bundle of paperwork you received on the way, and you should find stuff in it, uh, a sermon outline. It'll give you a, a sense of where we're going in the next few moments. You might find that helpful to have to hand. Let me pray as we look at God's word together tonight. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a promise-making and, and promise-keeping God. And yet, Father, tonight we recognize in our own hearts that so often we falter in our confidence in your promises. And so we ask for your help. We pray that your word would do its work in us tonight by the help of your spirit, that we would increasingly be a people who stand on the promises you make to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was at school, one of my best friends was called Dave. In fact, he wasn't called Dave. That's not his real name, but I've changed it for tonight. But uh, let's call him Dave. Uh, Dave and I co-led the Christian Union group at school in our penultimate year. And I think in many ways, Dave was a much better leader than I was of that group. The summer came around, and during the summer, Dave met a girl. She was not a Christian, And they started to go out. Uh, Not long after that, uh, they started to sleep together, as Dave told me. And then when the autumn came around, uh, Dave rightly announced that he didn't want to be involved anymore in leading the Christian Union group at school with me. 
And then a few weeks after that, he stopped coming to the group altogether. And a few weeks after that, he no longer wanted to talk with me at all about Christian things. James, uh, not his real name again, was a student and uh, a very committed member of the church where I was a trainee many years ago. And uh, he was involved in telling people about Jesus and he helped to lead one of our small groups at, at church. And then he finished his time as, as a student and headed off to London and got a, a high-flying job in the, in the banking industry. The, the hours were crazy and so was the pay. And uh, such were the hours he had to work that early on he started to miss midweek small group at church and on Sundays as well and he said well it's just for a season but of course that season became a pattern and after a year or so he stopped going to church altogether and when I met up with him a few years later for coffee it was one of the most agonizing coffees I've ever had Uh, he announced to me that he was an atheist he didn't believe any of it and he no longer was following Jesus in the case of uh, Dave and James when it came to the short-term immediate pleasures of a relationship, a girlfriend, or a six-figure pay packet, they were far more desirable than following Christ. And isn't there a part of each one of us that completely gets why? Relationships are incredibly powerful. They can be a lot of fun. They can make us feel loved and needed. They give us a status, a a sense of belonging. A six-figure pay packet, you can buy a lot of fun, a lot of experience with that kind of money. And at the same time, the, the blessings and benefits of following Christ can often seem extraordinarily dim and distant. And for each one of us here tonight, if it's not a relationship or or it's not money, there'll be something that comes along that drags at our hearts in a powerful way in the moment that that the pleasures they offer seem far more real than the dim and distant benefits of following Christ. And that is why I think Genesis 26 is in the Bible. Last week we saw that uh, Esau spurns the the, the distant benefits of being part of God's people, his birthrights, all for the very immediate pleasures of a hot steaming bowl of stew because he was hungry. And at the end of our reading, if you notice, just at the end, we read about how Esau married two Hittite ladies. And from the context of Genesis, we know that that marriage, those marriages, were very much against God's pattern for his people. They brought great grief to his parents, Isaac and Rebekah. And so here... There are two bookends at the beginning and end of Genesis 26 describing a man making decisions that are all about short-term pleasures, immediate gains that are against following and standing on the promises of God. But tonight, the, the camera pans away from Esau and his quarrels with his brother Jacob, and they, the, the camera pans around, and it, it, it just pauses on Isaac. And I don't know about you, but it feels slightly frustrating because the storyline's been all about these two fighting brothers, and we want to know what happens in the fight between Esau and Jacob. But tonight is no sideshow. Because in between these two bookends of, of Esau turning away from the Lord and his promises is the story of Isaac. And as we learn what happens to him as he follows the Lord, so we see how tragic. Esau's decision to turn away from the Lord is. 
And at the same time tonight, I think we will be helped to know how to turn away from those short-term pleasures, attractive alternatives that will come our way, and to be people who remain steadfastly confident in the promises of the Lord. So the big question for us tonight, I think, is this. Why stick with the Lord even when there are attractive alternatives? As we dive into Genesis 26, we see this. The Lord keeps his promises first, despite the faltering faith of his people. And so verse one. Now, there was a famine in the land besides the earlier famine of Abraham's time, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines in Gerar. We're told, helpfully, this is not the first famine in Genesis. Back in chapter 12, Isaac's dad, Abraham, fled down to Egypt for food because of a famine. I think because down in Egypt, the great Nile River was a much more reliable supply of water in a drought than other supplies. And here I reckon Isaac is hatching the same plan as his dad. He's heading down towards Egypt. So he has to pass through the land of the Philistines on the way. And as he travels down, it seems the Lord at that point spoke to him. Verse two, the Lord appeared to Isaac and said, do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land where I tell you to live. Stay in this land for a while and I'll be with you and bless you. And what a blessing it will be. Verse three, Isaac and his descendants will, be, uh, will obtain the, the promised land for themselves. Verse four, his family will become a great nation and all peoples will be blessed through them. But look, Isaac has a decision to make. It's similar to Esau's decision from last week. It's about food and hunger. A famine is taking place. And in the days before freezers and tinned food and co-ops around the corner, to be in the middle of a famine was a matter of life and death. This was desperate. You can imagine his stomach rumbling even as the Lord spoke to him. Would he stay in the land, near and around the land of promise, even, even with the famine raging? Or would he head down to food in Egypt and fill his stomach with short-term pleasures that came there? It's the same kind of question Esau had last week with his rumbling tummy after being out hunting. Well, verse six. So Isaac stayed in Gerar. This is a great moment in Isaac's life. It is a moment of faith because he's choosing to stand on a promise that God has made to him despite his circumstances, despite his rumbling tummy. He's not going to Egypt after all. He's not pursuing short-term pleasures. He's gonna stay and see what happens. And so, uh, unlike Esau, he's a man of faith, trusting the Lord's word, the Lord's promises, But then look what happens in verse seven. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, she's my sister. Because he was afraid to say, she's my wife. He thought the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. 
like father, like son. We've heard this um, deception before in Genesis. Abraham twice, back in chapter 12, and, and then again in chapter 20, lied about his own wife, Sarah, because of this very reason, afraid that he'd be killed by the locals because of her beauty. And here was, here was the son, having learned nothing from his father, apart from how to copy a bad example, and he lies to, to protect himself from the threat he perceives. But the, the problem is that this is an act of fear, not faith. The Lord has just promised to Isaac, I'm going to bless you, you and your descendants. You're going to have a great nation. You'll, you'll inherit the land. And so it, that blessing does not include being murdered by the Philistines in that year. And yet here is Isaac, having just heard the promise, now fearful for his life. And so almost in the same breath, Isaac cancels the flights to Egypt, a great act of faith, and then he lies to save his skin, a great failure of faith. And so we see here a people, a man, who has faltering faith. It comes and goes. And doesn't that resonate with our experience of following the Lord? I don't know. We walk into the office tomorrow morning, and out of the blue, our boss tells us that we've lost our job. We've been made redundant. But even in that trial of financial insecurity and not knowing what to do next, somehow we're able to hold on to God's goodness to us and his his help with us and, and our hearts remain stable and steady even in the storm of that redundancy. But then the next week we get a call from the doctor, the tests are back and they're they're not what we expected. They're, it's bad news and we panic. In one moment, great faith in the Lord, the next moment we completely wobble. Well, maybe, uh, for others, we, we gladly give away a, a large chunk of our hard-earned salary to support local gospel ministry in the local church around us, confident that the Lord will provide all that we need as we give our money away. But then next week, we get a call from the estate agents telling us that the house that we had an offer accepted on, that whole thing has fallen through, and now we're back to square one, and we go into meltdown, thinking, does the Lord know and care about my need for a house? And so like Isaac, so often our hearts are a a tangled web of faith and fear all at the same time. At a previous church I used to be involved in, there was an elderly lady who really struggled to walk. She had, I think, severe arthritis. And uh, she used to hobble into church very slowly and in great pain. And one day as she walked in, she jokingly said to uh, my previous boss, the vicar, do you know where I can get some new legs? To which he replied, as a matter of fact, yes, I do. But you might have to wait a little while. To which she said, great, I don't mind waiting. It'll be worth it. In our best moments, I think we are like that lady when it comes to our health the reality is in this fallen world, as we get older, our bodies will, all, for all of us here tonight, our bodies will, will begin to break down in various ways. But the promise we have in the Bible is that um, through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, as we see him die and then raised to resurrection life, so each one of us, as our bodies fail, yet there'll be a day in the new creation when we're raised to resurrection life with bodies that are renewed and perfected and glorious and immortal, 
And so on our best days, as our bodies fail, we're like that lady clinging on to the truth of the new creation. On our best days, but often we're not having a good day. Often it's a bad day. The gray hairs, the wrinkles, the aches, the pains, the lack of mobility, the surgery, the treatments, the bad diagnoses, these things overwhelm us. They fill us with panic and fear about the future and and dread about what is to come. And they make us profoundly doubt God's gospel promises that one day the new creation will be raised with perfected bodies. Because our hearts are so often a tangled web of faith and fear all at the same time. And yet here's the thing. The Lord keeps his promises despite the faltering faith of his people. And I say that because of what happens next. Look at verse 11. So, it, uh, of course, uh, Isaac is caught with his wife. It's all clear now what's going on. Then verse 11. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who molests this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. It's a brilliant reversal because Isaac had been fearing for his life and I guess in many ways he should have been put to death for his lie and yet through it all, Abimelech now gives him a royal um, sanction protecting him from any harm. And then verse 12, it gets even better. Isaac planted crops in that land and the same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. I'm told last year that the average salary in the UK was around about 27,000 pounds. And um, imagine at the end of this coming year, a letter drops through the, the, the post box into our house and it's a bonus from, from, from work. And imagine if the bonus this coming year was a hundredfold our annual salary, 2.7 million pounds. That would be a good year, wouldn't it? That is, I think, something of the extraordinary, extravagant blessing the Lord provides for Isaac in the first year of implanting crops in the middle of a famine. Unheard of return. Wonderful yield, and it's because the Lord blessed him. And so here is Isaac, alive, now safe, and blessed in the land. The promises of the Lord back in verse 2 to verse 5, they are being kept despite the faltering faith of Isaac. And when we see how patient and gracious and merciful and kind and persistent the Lord is to his promises, even though so often we falter in our faith, yet still he keeps them. Why would we want to go anywhere else when we have that kind of Lord in charge of our lives? I think one particular area where Christians really falter in their faith is in the area of relationships, Certainly Esau did in our reading as he married the wrong woman. I think for some of us who are single and and long to be married, that singleness can be a moment we falter in our faith, trusting the Lord is is with us and and, um, working for us. We we doubt that there will come a moment in the new creation when we are beyond um, worry about our status or belonging or um, no need to fear in the future. At times, our faltering faith can lead us to want to abandon God's plan for us and we go and try to marry somebody who's not a Christian thinking that is better 
Uh, many of you know uh, Sam Aubrey, who's a Christian leader and speaker who is same-sex attracted. He's been very open about that. And he knows the Lord's pattern for marriage is that it is to be between one man and one woman for life. And so he knows that it's very likely he will be a, a single man for the rest of his life. And he's been very honest about how hard at times he finds that. At times, if you like, his faith falters in the goodness of the Lord. But one of the things he does to keep his faith strong in the Lord is to remind himself of gospel promises the Lord Jesus makes to people who sacrificially put him first, even when it's hard. He often mentions the words of Jesus in Mark 10. Don't turn to it now, but in Mark 10, Jesus is um, speaking to disciples who've left lots of things to follow Jesus and they're worried that they've um, left too much. And in verse 29 of Mark 10, Jesus says this, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecution and in the age to come eternal life. There's that same number again, 100 times back. There is something extravagant about the way the Lord blesses his people. And from the lips of Jesus, that blessing is not just in the world to come, it is now in the present. And for people like Sam and others who who struggle with singleness, fearing the Lord in their relationships. There's a great promise of family now, the church family, new brothers and sisters, mothers, parents. But also there's a promise of eternal life. And in the new creation where there'll be no marriage, nor will there be anxiety or fear or loneliness, worries about the future. And so for Sam and others, as they falter, yes, but stand on the promises of God, there is much to keep them confident in the future. Before we move on, there is one tricky detail we need to engage with. Um, You might have noticed that the Lord is able to provide for Isaac wonderfully, a hundredfold. And so why does he allow a famine? Well, to put it in our context... As Christians, we know that very soon we will enjoy all the wonderful blessings of living in the land of the new creation beyond sorrow and tear and suffering. But if that is God's good plan for us then, why does he allow now in the moment tears and, if you like, a famine, so often heartaches and pain and confusion The Bible gives us more than one answer to that question and in a sense, part of the clarity will have to wait until the new creation to get all the answers we might want. But I think Genesis 26 does give us a strong clue about one key answer. You see, Isaac's heart is a a tangle of faith and fear and the Lord wants to gradually grow in him, increasing faith in the promises of God. And one of the ways the Lord helps people with a tangled heart is to allow us in his love to experience times of testing and confusion to help us think through what it is we believe and to turn once again back to the promise-making, promise-keeping Lord. And as Isaac sees the Lord blessing him and keeping his promises, 
So again and again, we see as we trust the Lord that he comes through for us, he cares for us, he protects us. And we won't always get it right. At times, we all falter in our faith, but the Lord keeps his promises despite the faltering faith of his people. Well, next we'll come to our second point, and much more quickly, the Lord keeps his promises despite the vulnerability of his people. And it would be very tempting to to press the pause button at verse 13 and to sign off on a happily ever after story, but then look at how verse 14 continues. Uh, He, that is Isaac, had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. And so verse 15, they block up all the wells that his dad had dug. And then verse 16, Isaac is told he has to leave. And this is tough because remember the land he's just been looking after has produced a wonderful crop of 100 times what he sowed. And it's, it's pretty hard to walk away from that kind of provision when there's a famine on in the land. But the thing is, Isaac, he's vulnerable. He's just one household with a few servants and he's a guest of a mighty nation. And if they say go, he has to go. He can't just stay there. And so off he goes. He digs a new well, verse 19, but the locals muscle him out. Verse 21, the same thing happens again. And you can just imagine the mood in the Isaac camp. I've never dug a well, but I, I can imagine under the blazing sun and hot conditions, it's backbreaking work having to break through hard ground. There's no guarantee that all the efforts of that particular well will lead to water Uh, I guess I can imagine him and his servants as they dug away day after day thinking we might have been better off going to Egypt denial it's always there here we are digging another well hoping to find water but then finally verse 22 they dig a third time and this time no one quarreled with them they can stay and enjoy it and how did Isaac respond you can imagine him sitting back that evening at the, next to the well saying, well, well, well. That was a terrible joke that one of my colleagues, he will remain nameless, made to me this week. I'm, I'm sorry for passing it on. In fact, that is not what Isaac said at all. Verse 22. Now the Lord has given us room and we will flourish in the land. Vulnerable, absolutely. Protected, totally. Then the Lord affirms his promise to Isaac again and Isaac responds in worship as he builds an altar to the Lord. And to finish it all off, there's this wonderful reversal because just a few verses ago, Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, has driven Isaac out of this nice setup he has into the desert, into the unknown. But then... Abimelech comes, verse 28, with a very different tune. They answered, we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. So we said, there ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between us and you. Let us make a treaty with you. And it's a great reversal because Abimelech said, go away. I want nothing to do with you. Now he says, I really want to be in the treaty with you. And in verse 31, there is a sworn oath. And there is peace. And this is a good treaty. It means that Isaac is now a recognized citizen within that country. He's allowed to be there. He has rights he didn't have before. And as if to confirm the goodness of this treaty, 
as soon as it's signed, verse 32, news comes back from his servants that they found more water from the next well-digging project. And what has Isaac done through all of this wandering around the desert? All he's done is run away from every single fight that's come his way. He's done nothing. And the reason why Abimelech wants to be his friend now is because he says, I can see the Lord is with you. Everywhere he digs, he strikes water. It's unheard of in the desert because the Lord is with him, looking after him, vulnerable. Yes, protected, absolutely. In the New Testament, Jesus, when he met a woman at the well on a hot day, offered her a drink of water. That would be uh, eternal life for her if she accepted the, the drink. Jesus has come to bring us, if you like, water in the desert. He's come to bring us eternal life. I think this picture of Isaac digging and finding water and digging and finding water is a foretaste of the great offer Jesus gives us to Christians now. We have wells of eternal life springing up, water to quench our thirst forever. And as those who drink this water, those who follow Christ, The New Testament describes us as aliens and strangers in this world. We are people without a home, scattered around the world. But a day is coming when we will receive our true home, the new creation, a place of peace and safety, a place of flowing water and bounty and plenty. And it is the Lord who will secure this land for us, not our own strength or guile. But for now... As Christians, we will often feel very vulnerable. At a practical level, it might mean that we, as Christians, often worry about practical things like having enough money or enough resources or time or energy. The Bible doesn't guarantee us that we'll feel strong through life. But also as Christians, at times, we will feel threatened by the world around us. Very often, the people of God, the church, look very small, and the world that's hostile to the people of God looks very big and strong. And laws come that might hinder our freedom of speech. We might speak up about Christ in our workplace and uh, lose out on social standing. We might uh, miss the next promotion because of our boldness speaking about Christ. There will be times when we feel very vulnerable in a hostile world. But none of these threats can derail God's promise to bring us safely to a land of eternal peace. This uh, vulnerability is hard. When the Christian life feels full of uh, setback and hassle, when we pray and work and labor and we seem to lose what we, we have gained, it's easy to want to give up, to wonder if it's worth following the Lord Jesus. But the story of Isaac is showing us that even if there is delay and danger before God fulfills his promises, he will do it. I think this picture of Isaac um, fed and, and watered and protected and safe in the promised land, it's a, it's a picture, a foretaste of what awaits us if we stick with the Lord in the new creation. As we finish, I want to encourage us all to look at our own hearts tonight. I think we see in Isaac how easy it is for people of faith to falter in our faith. And I I wonder tonight, where, where are we tempted to be a faltering Christian in our faith? When are we tempted to be like Esau and to run after short term and immediate pleasures?
the remedy to a faltering faith is not to ignore it and to push it under the surface, nor is it to simply try harder in our own strength to summon up the right convictions. No, the remedy of a faltering faith is always only ever fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus and his trustworthiness. There's no one like him. My friend Dave from school, his relationship was fun for a few months, but it didn't last very long and it ended very soon. My friend James Well, I don't know how his career has gone, but we've lost touch, sadly, but I know that no amount of money can secure eternal life for the new creation. But the Lord can. And he and he alone will bring us safely home as we cling on to him. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again tonight for this insight into your faithfulness. And Father, we thank you for the realism of Genesis 26 as we see how uh, your people again and again are people of faltering faith, vulnerable and easily pushed around by the world. And so, Father, we thank you tonight that our Salvation, our place in the new creation is not down to our own strength, our own own, uh, resilience. But we thank you, Father, it is only through the Lord Jesus. And so we pray tonight, help us to cling on to him. Help us not to be a people who run after short-term pleasures and forsake Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.